0: Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. On this episode, I have a very special guest. This is my husband, Richard. Say hi, Richard.
1: Hi, Richard.
0: (laughs) He does that all the time. He's very funny. Richard and I met at a recovery meeting over 35 years ago, and we have been on our reparenting journey separately, but side by side. So I don't think anybody can do this with somebody else necessarily other than maybe a sponsor or a therapist. So we have stayed out of each other's journeys, except we report to each other and maybe give suggestions once in a while. So Richard, let's start off with a little bit about your childhood. What was your family like when you were born?
1: Well, when I was born, my mom was here. My dad was overseas in the military. My mom was living with her parents in a little town in Nebraska, and I was the first of five kids. I didn't see my dad for probably two years. I was around two, three when I saw him for the first time. I had no idea who he was. This guy all of a sudden showed up and like, what are you doing here? I'd lived on a farm with an aunt and uncle. My mom did, wasn't ready to have kids, but she had one. She had other plans, so I got shipped off to a farm in Nebraska, and that was my real home for many years. That's where I grew up. So,
0: Okay, so who did you live with there?
1: Uh, aunt and uncle. Aunt Helen and Uncle Chalmer. They didn't have any kids. Helen she wasn't the oldest. I think she was the second oldest in the family. Chalmer, I had no idea where he came from <laughs> Came from at all. Helen's side of the family was where my mom was, and there was a bunch of people that I knew.
0: Okay, so I've seen pictures of your life on the farm, and it looked pretty idyllic. It was. You and the goose, and you and the horse. and
1: Sometimes not idyllic. I think I was about three, and there's a picture of me in the snow, all down with my snow gear on, and my goose was with me, and the goose was big as I was, and we ate the goose at one point. <laughs> I had no idea what I was eating, and I remember I had oyster crackers, and she made soup out of it, I don't know what. She didn't tell me until I was an adult. They did not tell me when I was a kid, but living on the farm, it's like we had animals and we ate the animals. The only animal we didn't eat was the horse, Uh, the cows, the pigs, the chickens, and uh, my uncle hunted a lot, so we had a lot of wild game we ate, but that goose was, if I'd have known what happened, I'd have probably been severely depressed. Right. So what happened
0: when your dad came home from the war and you were supposed to go home and be a part of this wonderful family that you had no idea existed?
1: Uh, that was their plan, not mine. My life was living on the farm. And I remember for years of when my mom and dad were coming to get me on the farm, I would run somewhere and hide. And they would find me, and they would drag me to the car screaming and hollering. I didn't want to go with those people. I didn't like those people. I didn't want to live with those people. Uh, And I don't know that I ever really got used to that. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what are your earliest memories about living with those people?
1: Fear. Fear. uh, Unhappiness. Yeah. Probably those two things, fear and unhappiness.
0: Okay, and you had more siblings, so how was it after your brother and sisters were born?
1: I don't think it changed at all. There were more people around. Uh, I'm the oldest of five. I was born, and three years after me, a sister, then three years after her, a brother. And then there was a big gap. I think of about seven years, and they had twins. And I was never really close to anybody. The twins, the twins, I got close to them. I was around 13, I think, when they were born. Uh, my sister, right underneath me, didn't much care for her because she got to come out to the farm. And I hated that. That was my farm, not her farm. None of those people had any rights to that farm but me. And so I had to eat that one, find some way to deal with it. And She just, she was a sister, she was a pain. Yeah, she was a pain.
0: Okay. Do you have any memories of trauma
1: from when you were a little one? Mm, you know, when I was little, most of the time, it was funny. I used to think my uncle would hit me. He, he used to, he'd tell me he was going to go get the strap, and he had this big razor strap. And he would just get it and he would hold it. And he would say things like, you want me to use it? You know, and it's like, I knew he wouldn't do it, but it still scared me a little bit. There might come a day when he did. If it had been my dad, my dad would have used it. My dad used to hit me all the time. He'd double up his fist and punch me and then just stand there and look at me. So I forgot where we started with that one. (laughs)
0: We started with trauma that happened when uh, in your childhood.
1: Yeah, it was trauma being taken away from the farm. That was the big trauma of the time. My home was on the farm. My home was with the people on the farm. My home was with the animals on the farm. It wasn't with those people going to God knows where. Okay. So when you
0: started school, how was school for you?
1: I hated it. I remember my mom walking me to school. It had to be kindergarten. This was in Nebraska. And you had to have your own mat rug, something to lay on. Oh, for your nap? Yeah, for nap time. And I don't know. I was always embarrassed walking to school because I was with my mom. Didn't much care for her. Wouldn't be quite as bad as my dad. My dad I really disliked being with. But mom I just mostly get embarrassed. be seen with her
0: so would you say you didn't really bond with them
1: nobody there there was no bond in there whatsoever okay the closest thing to a bond was my brother my brother and then the twin sisters I had yeah I bonded somewhat to the three of them but the rest of my mom and dad and my sister nope so I remember some
0: stories about your grandfather this was your mom's dad yeah
1: (laughs) stories this is funny because this is how it actually happened in my life i had i knew i had a grandfather but i had no conscious memory of what he did to me starting at the age of three when i got into recovery it came up real quick it was there and he sexually molested me from the age of three until i was about eight years old and like just talking about it a little while ago, asked me about trauma. That's not where my head goes first. A lot of other things happened, but that was probably the single most powerful thing that affected my life that happened to me that I've had to deal with. Yeah.
0: And you didn't remember it at all until I you had got no into recovery? No
1: memory of it until I got into recovery. It was like it popped up one night and I uh, was with my wife at the time. She was my wife, she was my girlfriend. That would be be me. That would be be you. And I was having this nightmare, and it was probably about two, three o'clock in the morning. And I just said, I have to go. And go didn't mean just, I have to go. It mean, I'm out of here. And that meant I packed up whatever belongings I had there. I had to borrow a car to take it home. So I borrowed a car, moved my stuff home, brought a car back, got on my motorcycle, went home, laid on the floor with a loaded 38 till about 6 or 7 in the morning to call somebody that I trusted to tell them what was going on and see what kind of guidance they'd give me. But in like the guidance, I wouldn't be here today. And do you remember what the guidance was? The guidance was, you sound like an incest survivor, you need some professional help. And as soon as he told me that, I knew it was the truth. That's what I needed. And I didn't even begin to understand the impact that that had on me at that time. It was like, yep, I've been molested, and that was it.
0: Okay. Tell me a little bit about your teenage years and how that went. Well,
1: first thing I remember, the teenage years, and this didn't come back to me until recovery either, but when I was 13, uh, I attempted suicide. My appendix had broke. I wanted to die, and I went somewhere, found a place to lay down, and was going to die there. And... For some reason, my father looked for me and he found me. Every day I was outside somewhere doing something and my dad never looked for me. On that particular day, my dad looked for me or I wouldn't be here. My appendix had burst, the gas, whatever's there was in my body and I was on my way out of here. And that's how I remembered the event. When I got into recovery, the memory came back that when I was 13, I wanted to kill my family because they were a part of the lie that was me. They were a part of what happened to me. They were a part of me that nobody wanted to see. And so somebody had to pay for that and they were the ones that were gonna pay. But instead, my appendix burst and I'd said, well, I'll be the one to leave, not them. And for some reason, my dad found me, and they took me to the hospital, and I wasn't okay, but it was like, I didn't know why it had happened. I don't remember even thinking about I wanted to kill myself, but it was all puberty coming up. And then again, when I was 17, I was graduating from high school, and I attempted suicide again. The girlfriend that I had at the time wanted to break up with me, and date other people and I didn't want to do that and so I had to get out of the car and I took off driving down the road and drove into a canyon thinking I was going to die and it didn't happen for the second time so after that I gave up on it it was like I still had thoughts about it but I didn't ever try it again so.
0: Okay. You got married fairly young. How old were you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's the girlfriend that's the girlfriend who wanted to go out with other guys. I got her pregnant my plan was get her pregnant and she asked to marry me. So I got her pregnant and she married me. So I was like seventeen. I don't think I wasn't even eighteen yet, seventeen when I had our first kid. By the time I was 21, we had three kids. So she was, uh, the connection was sex. And that was pretty much our relationship. I don't think neither one of us knew anything. Uh, But I look back on it and there wasn't much else there. And then we got divorced uh, not too long after that. I think I was maybe 23, 24 when we got divorced.
0: What do you think caused the divorce? What what kind of triggered that?
1: What triggered it was, was I was going to uh, Mesa College, and one of the classes I had was a psychology class, and the professor started writing all these illnesses, mental illnesses that people have, and Every one of them was me, some more than others, but every one of them was me. And so I started looking for a therapist, somebody to talk to he, The professor was the first one I went to. He had private practice. And I went up to where his office was and left. And then I went to Kaiser and they gave me some pills. And then a friend of mine introduced me to a therapist that had helped him. And the therapist ended up molesting me. And wasn't too long after that I got divorced. Okay. So how long did this relationship with the
0: therapist last? In a therapeutic sense or otherwise?
1: You know, it wasn't ever therapeutic. He was a sexual predator. I didn't know it at the time, but he was a sexual predator. And my issue was being molested by my grandfather and to me i look at the relationship and what happened was he was my grandfather this person was my grandfather and i had to live with him and i had to do what he wanted me to do in order for me to have any kind of life which is my role with my grandfather as long as i sexually did what he wanted me to do I could go do anything else but I had to do that first and it was the same way with this therapist
0: all right I believe you were still living with this person when you got into recovery is that correct
1: yes yeah so what happened was after a couple of years of living I lived with him for 15 years And after a couple of years, I didn't want to participate in sex with him anymore. So for the next 13 years, 12, 13 years, there wasn't any sex. There wasn't going to be any sex. I still had to live there. I couldn't leave. If I left, then I'd have to do the same thing with somebody else. So I just decided that was the best thing to do. And then this uh, person that I worked with, we were friends, and he was gay. Uh, we used to talk every day, and he was in recovery also, and he wanted to get me into recovery. And so he actually introduced me to my first two programs, recovery programs. And one day we were talking, and he said, you know, all the things you've told me, everything I know about you, you are not gay. And when he told me that, it was like, I had some kind of freedom, that I didn't have to live that way anymore. And I remember when I, the day I left his apartment, I was walking down the hallway, and there was this like, box with all these little dividers inside of it. And the lid to the box fell open, and there were all the dividers, and inside of each divider was a scroll. And these were all the scrolls of my life. And I knew from that day going forward, every one of those scrolls was going to come out and I was going to have to deal with it. And it wasn't a scary feeling. It was a very comforting feeling like, okay, this is what we're going to do next. And then the person I was living with, I said, look, I'm out of here. And he said, I don't care if you live here. You can bring women here. You can do whatever you want to do. And it's like, but that's not me living my life. That's me doing what you want me to do, and I'm not willing to do that. So I moved out. The interesting thing is I ended up working for him. I, I, he had a business that I worked in and stayed there. I actually worked there and uh, lo- I wouldn't say looked after him, but there came a point when he got ill and he couldn't take care of himself and i stepped in to help people take care of him to make sure that he died a dignified existence you know that he didn't i don't know go out the sexual predator he was that he went out that that's what he was i told people that's what he was but just to make sure it was okay and when i was doing it i knew i'm doing this for my grandfather was the guilt that i had felt when my grandfather died that that was my fault and i didn't want this one to be my fault and i was gonna do what i could do to make it okay
0: okay so i think if i'm not mistaken that was so far the longest relationship in your life was with that man yeah
1: well 15 no well up yeah. to that point yeah no
0: i mean as far as Living with, working, taking care of—that encompassed 50
1: years. Oh yeah, the 60 whole thing, years. Yeah, 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 easy. Well, I met him in 1968.
0: Okay, and he died in 2000. He died in
1: 2007.
0: Okay, so that's how long.
1: 49. He years. was in your life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was a huge. He was a huge part of my life, just like my grandfather was. I mean, the two. To me, they were inseparable. They were the same thing. They were the same human being. All right. Now, when you got to this recovery program
0: for adult children, do you remember the first time you saw the laundry list, (laughs) how that affected you?
1: Yes. I think the laundry list has 14 things on it, and every one of them was me. And I thought, how is this even possible? That there's a whole bunch of people, not just one or two, but a whole bunch of people that are just like me, that I'm not that fucked up.
0: I know. I felt like somebody was following me around and writing down all the things I did and the parts of me and just printed them out on this thing called the laundry list.
1: Yep, yep. And I remember when we were doing stuff from our home, mailing out literature on programs that... Sometimes people would just start crying when they were reading the thing. And it's like, yeah, I understand. And, yeah. Yeah. It's a great relief to know that I'm not the only one in the world.
0: Right. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you read The Solution, which is kind of the answer to the laundry list? Yeah, or it's
1: like, no. Uh, it was years. The Solution sounded like... Opening up a bag of M&Ms. I mean, you start, there's just a bag. But you get it open and the M&Ms are all inside. To me, anything other than the laundry list would be the bag. It was like, that was something, but the real stuff was inside of there. And there was no way I was getting inside of there for a while. It was there, but it wasn't there for real right now.
0: So the idea of reparenting of becoming your own loving parent, that didn't really fit for you in the beginning? Not a
1: clue. <laughs> <laughs> no. The reparenting the first time I went, well, the second sponsor I had, he did a lot of things other than recovery programs. <clears throat> and one night was with a group of people that my first sponsor was hanging out with at the time and they were doing a guided uh visualization and go inside and find your little kid so go inside find my little kid and this huge human being shows up and goes get the fuck out of here and it was my little kid with a big sword and he was okay with killing anybody killing me didn't make any difference Everybody died, he could stay alive, but nobody else could. And that was my, like reparenting, that was my introduction to me. To your inner child? To my inner child. And it took, it was probably two or three years before I could look in a mirror, talk to him, when he didn't have a sword in his hand, saying, Get the fuck out of here.
0: So there was absolutely no trust there.
1: No, no, I didn't trust anybody. Yeah. Which leads me, this is the story, the third kid we had was a little girl. Her name was Rachel. And when she was born, there was something about her that made sense to me. And I loved her. And knowing that I loved her, I thought about my wife. I did not love her. I had two sons. I did not love them. Her I loved. And she died when she was 18 months old, so the relationship didn't last very long. And I was with her when she died. And to me it's up up until that point was the most complete relationship I ever had with anybody. But what she did was she woke up something inside of me that had been buried for many many years and it was after that that i started looking for help when i knew something was wrong with me so a lot of times i kind of look she came into this world to help me figure out who i was and when she did that she left and when she died i didn't know who i was but i was on my journey to get to where i am today
0: all right I think we're going to stop there for this episode. There will be a part two to this one, so be sure and look for that and join us for that. So thank you, Richard, for part one. I can't wait to hear more about part two. I've learned some things today that I hadn't heard before, and I've known this guy, like I said, over 35 years. So stay tuned for part two. Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm, and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wild. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.